several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow And it is time for your weekly grape encounter. And it's always fun to spend a little time with somebody who came down with the winemaking bug early on, was going in one direction and completely changed gears and went another direction because they just got infected with it. And there's a guy I've been wanting to bring into the studio for a really long time. His name is Tyler Thomas, and he is an awesome winemaker in our area out here on the central coast of California. And he works with two different labels that I absolutely, totally love. I've been drinking his wines for a pretty long time. First label is called Star And they make some just awesome wines. And then I just became familiar with another label, which is the Deerberg label. And Tyler, welcome to the studio. I'm glad to have you here. I have loved your wines. It's always nice when I get to talk to somebody whose wines I really drink, I really love, and I can really pontificate about. (laughs) So welcome. Appreciate that, David. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So you have been making wine for a pretty long time now, but we're going to talk about a very interesting subject mostly today, but we're going to cover a lot of ground. Yeah, great. But what I wanted to particularly talk about today was the idea of having a long-term plan Mm -hmm. as a winery. And I don't mean like 20 years or even 50 years. Mm -hmm. The folks you work for and work with have like a 250-year plan. Right. And that's so un-American. Very un-American. In America, we build something with the goal of eventually tearing it down and building something grander 20 years from now or whatever. Right. You know, everything is just there for a short period of time. And so it's really interesting to talk to somebody from an organization that's got a different, a more European idea about mm-hmm. things. Jim and Mary Deerberg are unique in that respect of establishing a winery with that kind of long-term vision. You know, when I first began conversations with them about joining their team, my wife and I, you know, were moving from the Sonoma area, had been up there for 10 years and really wanted to feel like this would have a high probability of being the kind of gig that we could be there for a long time. So I asked Jim, I said, Jim, what's your 30 year plan? Now, I was thinking if it could be a 10 year, you know, opportunity, that would be great. If you could get 10 years out of him, that would be a good yeah, thing. And but, yeah. I wanted to see how they thought about it. You know, did yeah, they think exactly. that way? You know, what's your 30 year plan? He said, I don't have a 30 year plan. 
plan. I have a 250-year plan. Really? And I sort and, of... And he was serious, though. He was. Well, I sort of chuckled, and he said, no, no, uh, we're serious. And, you know, he, he knows he can't control what his great-grandkids do, but somebody has to establish that vision if you're ever going to reach for it. And so then when I visited the properties and particularly saw the winery, you see that they didn't build a knockdown structure that is going to go away after 30 years. You know, they built a winery that is inspired by European counterparts who have handed down wineries for generations. And it just really communicated to me a unique sense of patience, which I've always learned or felt is one of the best tools of a winemaker anyway. Winemaking, though, I think is probably different in the sense that there is more attention to long-term planning than most things because you have to be patient to make wine. Yeah. Just plain and simple. Yeah. You got to wait all year for the grapes to ripen. You're not just waiting. You're, you know, meticulously taking care of them. But then after that, you know, once you finally get that wine into the barrel, it's going to sit and you're going to wait. And yeah. if you're not, and you can't just drink it. No. And I think that that is absolutely true about making wine, but it does sort of clash a little bit with the American mindset where we think quarter to quarter or yearly. And, and I've interacted with owners, not necessarily worked for owners that are this way, but interacted with them where it's difficult for them to reconcile that fact of if you're making a red wine, a robust red wine, as we do with Starling Cabernet, you're not releasing it for three years. So, so it isn't just the cost of that one year. You've been investing for three years without anything that you've gotten a return on. And you need to think about wine in long term. So what do you say to the folks who are really all about instant gratification, both from the consumer side and the winemaking side? You know, we're always hearing now about wines that were made to drink now. Sometimes that, to me, is a little grating. <laughs> you know, it's okay. I mean, there are certain yeah. wines, obviously, especially, you know, with white wines, you know, they're drink it now wines. But in the red column, is there a compromise that occurs when you make a drink it now wine? You know, when the winemaker says to me, it's not really going to benefit much from laying it down in the cellar, you're taking away a lot of the fun of being a wine collector and enthusiast. I agree. I had somebody recently who's in the wine business and respected individual of the wine business recently referred to me as being overly intellectual about wine because I wanted to taste wines that had aged characters on them. You know, I, I always go back to what is wine for? I mean, it's designed for pleasure at the end of the day. And so I can understand why people are making wines in a style for immediate pleasure. I think you can make wines that are enjoyable and pleasing now. I think our wines are that way. But we, our personal view is we enjoy the potential longevity. You know, with part of the building that the Deerbergs has 250 cubbies in it to age. Jim wants to age Cabernet for 250 years. Wow. Now, is it going to be good in 250 years? Now, he would be upset if I said no, but... I'll just leave the question out there hanging. But I think that there should be some ability to balance enjoying a wine and getting pleasure out of a wine, even when it's young, without having to make it as a wine that can only be enjoyed young. I think there was an old school way of maybe making Bordelais varieties where let's get as much tannin as we can because it needs the tannin in order to age a long time. And I think we know that's now not necessarily true, which I think has allowed us to make wines with a little more balance young, so they are more enjoyable young. And the reason they'll age well, I think, is because they come from a great vineyard. You know, if you ask Burgundians, well, why did this wine age better than that wine? They'll say, because it came from over there. 
they're not going to rattle off pH and alcohol and all these chemical parameters. It's I don't know why. It came from over there, that property. This is such a a really good point. And we are talking to Tyler Thomas. He's the winemaker at Deerberg and also Starlane. Really awesome labels that come out of California, the central coast of California. We're really focusing in today on the idea of age and longevity and long-term planning when it comes to wine and, you know, what this is all about. It's a hard topic to wrap your arms around because, and we're going to get into this in the next segment, but because some wines are great right now. Mm -hmm. Some wines are going to be even better two years from now, and some are going to be even better, you know, 10 years from now. But there's a point where it starts to fall off pretty rapidly, isn't there, Tyler? Yeah. Absolutely. Some people have this romantic idea of wine that if you put it in a cellar, you've got a really nice wine cellar, and you stick it in there for 50 years, 50 years from now, oh, yum, yum, you're going to have something incredible. That is generally not the case. Right. I've had a lot of wines served to me that were perfectly fine, but they just tasted like old wines. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is you'll, you'll hear people say this about, you know, wines that come from Napa that were made, let's say, 40 years ago mm-hmm. when the area was really just getting its legs. And, you know, those wines weren't nearly as incredible as the wines we make today, mm-hmm. you know, because winemaking has gotten, you know, we've gotten so good at it. Yeah. And so a $10 bottle of wine today compared to a bottle of wine that was made 40 or 50 years ago is probably going to be better, Right. Yeah, I would think that the advances we've made, particularly in viticulture, and being able to give the winemakers more opportunities with when they pick, and then the winemaking tools themselves, sure, have aided, particularly in cleaning up wines, right? That just sanitation alone has improved over the last 40 years to the point where the ability to age something has improved because it's not going to get spoiled. Although there, there is a downside to, I think, too much sanitation. We'll talk about that, too. And we got so much to talk about, Tyler. I don't know how we're going to pack it all in. But talking to Tyler Thomas, winemaker at a label that I just love, Starling. And I like the label itself, by the way, the actual label, too. Very I like classic. the way the bottles look. It's very classy looking. Anyway, uh, you can Google it. Starling is the label and also Deerberg. And anyway, Tyler's got a great story. And we're going to get deeper into his story as we continue this discussion about long-term planning in the wine business on Grape Encounters Radio. Stay with me. At Grape Encounters, we're all about sharing. That's why it would be a crying shame if you didn't join our Facebook group page. Just search for Grape Encounters Radio on Facebook. It's where we're constantly sharing the latest wine news and information while you're waiting for your next episode of Grape Encounters. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue in just a minute. We like to talk about wine. sometimes say it's the wine talking well everyone knows that wine can't talk that's why a bunch of grapes got together and hired david wilson to do the talking for them here's david 
back with Grape Encounters Radio and my guest, Tyler Thomas. You know, it's always nice to be able to sit in the studio with somebody whose wines you just love. And by the way, I drank uh, three bottles of his wines in the last week because I had to do my research for this show. <laughs> of course. And uh, Tyler, you poured something for me here. Have you noticed my discipline, by the way? I have not taken one sip since we sat down in the studio. I appreciate it. It's a wine that needs a little air anyways. Let's talk about it. What do we got in the glass? So you have our sort of reserve level Cabernet that we call a straw, A-S-T-R-A-L, under the Starlane label. And I like to describe it as a wine of selection. So it's starting from select blocks in the vineyard, but it so happens that those Cabernet blocks are also own rooted vines. So the Deerbergs took the risk partly because of their long-term plan. Okay, so explain what that means though. Right. Okay. So own rooted vines, most vines grown in Europe and California and many parts of the new world are not actually grown on roots that are the same species as the vine itself. Cabernet. Right. Merlot, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, what have you. They're grown on American species that are resistant to a root louse called phylloxera that almost devastated the European wine industry in the late 19th century. And which, so, which, by the way, I want to interrupt for a second because it's an interesting story. The entire European wine industry got wiped out by this virus that they got from us, right? Correct. And then we ended up saving the day. Correct. By giving them rootstock that we had. Actually, it came from Texas, right? Correct. And the reason that this rootstock was resilient was because here in America, <laughs> we had developed rootstock that was tolerant to phylloxera, right? Exactly. And, we had natural selection here that was resistant to the effects of this root loss. So it, it exists, but it just doesn't hurt the vine with these American species. So in a way, we devastated and then rescued Europe, which we've done in other ways as well, I think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the wine is unique to work with own-rooted Cabernet. We have some of the only acreage in the state, actually, of own-rooted Cabernet. And what does that do for the wine is, of course, a relevant question. And we're still learning that, to be honest. Hey, Tyler, what does that do for the wine? It makes it better. You know, we're still in the sort of observation phase. And the farming is different, though. Vitus vinifera is a pretty vigorous species of grapevine. And so on its own roots, it's actually more vigorous. If you have it on a rootstock, you're devigorating that vine, which can be good for quality. But in an area like Santa Barbara County, where we are, and at the Star Lane Vineyard, we only get about 15 inches of rain a year on average. So we have a very low... There are people listening in other parts of the country that are going, 15 inches of rain, we get that in a day. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> right. we're, we're five hours south of San Francisco, so our climate starts to look a little bit more like what people might associate with Los Angeles, which is warmer, drier, more I thought sunshine. you were going to say the Sahara, actually. <laughs> Not quite the Sahara. And so having more vigorous vines is actually good in a low vigor area. So it makes a really good match for our soil types and our amount of rainfall. So we irrigate the own rooted vines less, but they throw a really nice, healthy canopy, really great fruit position and fruit crop load. And then when we bring it in the cellar, we also notice that we can carry more classic Cabernet flavor profiles, maybe a little bit more fresh herb notes or cassis, things that people associate with uh, maybe even classic cab from Bordeaux into riper kind of California textures. So we're able to sort of get some of the plushness that people associate with California without necessarily compromising some of these sort of classic flavor profiles of cab. We can macerate them and have this on the skins and extract tannin almost, you know, 10 days, two weeks longer than our other cab. And for some reason, we get a finer kind of richer tannin. And I 
I, again, I don't know why. These are just things that we've observed. So then why do it? Is it an experiment or? Well, when you have. I mean, what would cause you to sort of break with tradition and the norm and to do it this way? Insanity. Yeah. Insanity. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's when you have a multi-generational plan, you can take these risks over the course I gotcha. of a vine's generation. So most people plan a vineyard and they're expecting to get 22 to 25 years out of it, hopefully. Let me interrupt you there because going back to really our theme of the day, yes, we take vines out after, you know, 15 years, let's say. Right. But we talk with pride about old vines, especially in the context of Zinfandel. Yeah. And 100-year-old vines and 150-year-old vines. Why is it that with Zinfandel, we're so focused on that being a point of pride, but with other varietals, it's not the same? Is it just that particular varietal that tends to produce for a longer period of time? What's the story, Morning Glory? I think that sometimes we start to promote things and market things as if we intended it, when in reality, we're just promoting and marketing what is reality. It's just what we have. You know, in Napa, for a long time, they promoted instead do. Diurnal swings, huge diurnal swings are really important to quality. So if you have, you know, warm days, but you get really cold nights, that that's great for quality. And it is good. That's Mediterranean temperate climate. That's good. But it doesn't mean that having lower high temperatures and slightly higher low temperatures is bad for quality. So why did they promote that in Napa? Well, that's what they had. Most of the fruit is on the valley floor and that's what valley floor climate is like. If you go into the hillsides, which is very good fruit, you don't see that same swing. But we know that's really good wine. So I think with the Zinfandel there just was a lot of old vines in out there that was still productive enough to be economically so in other viable words, you're, you're, and made good wine. Every year, if the vines are producing, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Don't fix it. If it's right, not, yeah. There's a whole host of diseases that are trying to attack vines from the very moment you put them in the ground. And to, to keep those at bay for 25 years is difficult. And they can begin to take a toll, not just on productivity in amount, but also quality. All right. We're going to have to go to commercial break here in just a second. But before we do that, I want to just have you make a couple of comments about the difference between a reserve wine and your regular everyday variety wine. Because, you know, people hear about reserve, but there's not really, you know, a clear definition of what that means. But in your mind, uh, why don't you what just throw it? out there. Yeah. That's a great question. To me, it comes down to selection, the ability to generate a more complete wine or more pleasure or more complexity from fewer components. So we would have a hard time making 8,000 cases of the Astral, which we're tasting now from Star Lane, because the characters we get out of the four or five blocks that go into this wine are so unique and sort of individual that to begin adding other things would begin to diminish the differentiating right. proposition that those blocks offer. But with the Starlane wine, which we think is a very fine Cabernet, we're trying to make something that is the heartbeat of that whole vineyard in our own. Uh, okay, more blocks. so I'm just going to say this wine is just blowing my mind. It is so good. Oh, thank you. It is so delicious. But I do want to end this segment by saying this about the word reserve. Be careful, gang. Reserve is a word that means nothing, nothing, nothing in a lot of cases. In the case of wines like this that are coming from a great winemaker like Tyler, it means everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, anybody can put the word reserve on a bottle. And there are no laws pertaining to the use of the word reserve. So please don't be fooled by that. When it's a reputable winemaker using the term reserve, that means that they went out and they were very careful about the grapes that were selected for this particular wine. And it's their baby. 
but it's not always the case. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. All right, we're going to come back, spend a few more minutes with Tyler Thomas of uh, Deerberg and also Starlane Wineries on the central coast of California. And we're going to return to this idea of planning long term. The Europeans do it really well. The Chinese do it even better. Americans not so good at it, but it's nice to see an organization that's really, really focused on generations of winemaking in the future. So that's what we're talking about here on Grape Encounters. So just what is a grape encounter? It's when wine is the catalyst of a really great time. Your grape encounter with David Wilson will continue in just a minute. Plan ahead, plan ahead. That's what the wise man said. Success is hard to win, but you can win it. If you do a lot of thinking in advance and make the necessary... Conservative about what he spends on wine, but liberal on how much he pours his friends. Here's your host, David Wilson. Plan ahead. And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio and, you know, talking about something that is really not a great American characteristic, which is planning for the long term. I think we're getting better at it, but generally speaking, we don't think in this country too far down the road compared to other cultures. And I've got Tyler Thomas in today. He's the winemaker at Starling and Deerberg. And those are two different labels owned by Jim and Mary Deerberg. Now, they started with a winery and they still have it, right, in Missouri, right? That's correct. In Missouri, Norton is the big grape there, right? Correct. The big red grape, yeah. And it tends to be sweet, right? Well, there are several people making it dry. It's a difficult grape to work with because it has high pH, which is a you know measurement of acidity. But then there's actual acidity in it that's also very high. Usually, if you have really high acidity, you have low pH. And it's a challenge for the winemakers there, but it is sometimes made with residual sugar in it. Partly, I think, to balance that acidity, partly because they think that's what people expect for that variety, unfortunately. Well, in other parts of the country, the tendency is to make sweeter wines. Right. I mean, that's just a fact. Right. But still, California produces at least 90% of the domestically consumed wine here in America. So it's going to tend to a little bit drier. So let's go back to the long-term plan of the Deerbergs. I was watching something the other night about the Great Wall of China and the fact that I think it took like 1,700 years to build. Have you ever been to the Great Wall? I haven't, no. Like you go to places like that or the Great Pyramids and you go, wow, you can't get this done in a year or two years or five years or 10 years or even 100 years. 1,700 years. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, who thinks like that? Right. And yet, you know, when you go to Europe and you go to the great chateaus in Europe, those have been around for, gosh, centuries and centuries. Mm-hmm. Are we doing a better job here in America of thinking long term in the wine business, do you think? Are we doing a better job in the wine business versus other businesses? Or versus- Well, no, I mean, just in, well, in general, America tends to have a throwaway culture. Yeah. But the wine industry, by its own nature, you know, you have to have patience. We talked about that earlier. In the business, do you see more? 
more of your colleagues sort of thinking way down the road as opposed to just five years down the road? That's a great question. You know, I think yes and no. We're not well trained, I think, as a culture to even know how to define what it means to think way down the road. So on one hand, I think the answer is yes, because I think people think a 10-year, 15-year plan is a long-term plan here. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, we don't have very many estate producers anymore. To get into the business, it's, you know, find a garage east place to make your wine, buy some fruit from a vineyard and start. And that's a great way to start because the, the barriers for entry are you know, less cost prohibitive. So this is really such a good point is that if you want to be a winemaker and we've done a lot of shows on becoming a winemaker, you can do it with no capital, basically. Right. You can do it very easily. It takes almost nothing to make wine, right? especially if you're just making like a barrel. Right? And my experience with people that have gone that route is that they often don't have some long-term vision about where they're going to end up. It's just sort of, hey, I want to make a little bit of wine. I'm going to start this label. And I think part of that is because owning land, which I think embeds you in a long-term vision even more, is so hard to do in California. It's hard to start from that scratch. So I don't necessarily fault producers that don't have that long-term plan because it's difficult when you don't control your own destiny as much as we get to do at Deerberg and Star Lane because we do all of our own farming in-house and we have our own property. We then ought to and can think in a much longer-term way because we need to think, as we discussed earlier, in vine generation segments. And what can we learn from these vines in the 20 to 25 years, hopefully longer, that they're productive and giving us good quality so that the next time we plant, we can go even further? Well, I think it's helpful that you have children that because you can think about you have to be concerned not just about your lifespan, but theirs as well. And, you know, hopefully their children's children as well. I never had children. And, you know, what a shame. The world only gets me. (laughs) But I never had children, so I tend not to think, you know, that far down the road. Right. And I think families do. But, you know, I think about, for instance, when I had the opportunity to go visit Madeira, where they make the great Madeira wines. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to me that there were wines in there that are 400 years old, you know, and they keep these wines going and they, you know, periodically refresh the barrels and rebottle the wines and do all kinds of cool stuff to keep these wines alive, literally, yeah. for centuries. And these wines are absolutely delicious. Yeah. And you think, how do you do that? I mean, how do you actually sit down and go, well, we're not going to sell these five barrels of wine until our great, great, great grandchildren's you know, generation comes along. Right. That's so cool, right? Yeah. Your analogy, your reference to to children and how that encourages thinking long term is actually appropriate because I think a little bit about what we're doing as if we are raising our kids. I have three kids and we have three vineyards at Deerberg and Star Lane, ironically. And our differentiating proposition is that land. You know, it is figuring out what those vineyards are over the long term because that will be what makes us special, what makes our, you know, wines taste a little bit different. And so the vineyards themselves are like personalities of a child. And you have to think beyond today or they're upset if they're a teenager and they're being emotional about something. It's, you have to think we're trying to turn them into a human being that will be a productive person for society that knows right. himself well and you know has freedom to be their own man or woman. And how do you help them unearth that when they're at a young age and they're trying to figure themselves out? If we were prescriptive, say, in our winemaking and we treated every vineyard exactly the same, that'd be like disciplining your kids exactly the same. And that may only work for one of 
the three personalities you have. And so we need to really work to unearth what our vineyards are trying to say. The Star Lane Vineyard with its Cab and its Sauv Blanc and the Deerberg Vineyards with its Pinot and Chard. What are the unique qualities those vineyards are going to offer? And can we work over the next decade, next 20 years to unearth that and figure out what our differentiating proposition yeah, is. And we only have a minute left, believe it or not, but at what point are we pushing the vineyard too far and trying to force it to do something that it doesn't want to do? Do you know what I mean? You can nudge it one direction or another, but is it ultimately best to let the vineyard do what the vineyard wants to do? I think so. I mean, I think it depends on your brand and wine philosophy. And I think this is more of a new world approach is we have a style we want to make and we are more likely to insert our uh, program and style onto the vineyard as opposed to, say, asking the vineyard, what style does that vineyard want to produce? And so we get obsessed with little things like this clone is what's best because that's what they used in this great vineyard in Burgundy. It's like, Well, it's not to say that clones aren't important, but how in the world can you possibly think that this clone in some completely different area is going to behave the same way in a totally different area? But sometimes you talk to winemakers and you get the impression that they think that that's the way it works. And I think that's a little bit of the wine style trying to push itself onto the vineyard as opposed to what you're you know, asking and proposing is maybe there's something the vineyard wants to offer that you can put some stylistic variants on, but it's the vineyard is what's driving the story. Well, I, probably I would say you almost have to leave it at this, that good winemakers, good wine growers, and you hear that term a lot more these days, mm -hmm. wine growers, because great wines definitely are made in the vineyard first and foremost, they're good dancers. You have to dance with the grapes. You don't get to force the grapes to do what you want them to do. Right. You know, you have to take into consideration, like you were saying, you know, every vineyard has its own personality like a child, and you're going to have to instruct each one differently, right? Right. I borrowed this phrase from an intern that worked for us years ago, where she said once, it's a grapes world and we're just living in it. <laughs> you, know. you know what? We're going to leave it at that. <laughs> hey, it, Tyler, it's been great to have you in. Tyler yeah, Thomas, the winemaker at Deerberg and also Star lane. Two really great labels. How do people find the wines? Because the wines are going to be available most places, right? Yes. We distribute across the U.S., both Deerberg, Pinot and Chard, and Sauv Blanc and Cab. And then we have additional wines available at the uh, tasting room in just west of Buellton, California, in uh, Santa Barbara County. <laughs> Buellton. Everybody's going, what's a Buellton? People out of the area. Yeah, so check it out. I always tell people, you know, just Google it. That's yeah. the easy way. Or, yeah. you know what, you can go to grapeencounters.com and we'll have information there as well. These are really awesome wines. And, you know, I really love supporting organizations like this that are thinking long term. And one last thought too, winemakers, grape growers are among the finest guardians of this earth that you can possibly imagine. You know, they're all across this country now, the idea of sustainability and taking care of the mm -hmm. land, regardless of what our government is doing and how it feels about, you know, conservation and whatever. The winemakers of the world are definitely taking things into their own hands and have really united together to take great care of the land. And I think that's an awesome thing. Yeah, I agree. And thank you for having me. This has been really fun. And I appreciate the support and the comments about the wine. Ah, you bet. You know what? I'm going to finish up this Cabernet on the break. And then uh, guess who's coming over next? It's going to be Sarah Schneider oh, from great. Sunset Magazine is going to be in here. Can we save her one glass? We'll save her one glass of the wine. I'll save you. I'll leave you the whole bottle. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to let you take it with you. What were you thinking? All right. We'll be back with Sarah Schneider from Sunset Magazine next on Grape Encounters Radio. Plan ahead. Plan ahead. Do what 
the wise man said. Yeah, said so. Just remember, in a thousand years we'll all be dead. So plan, plan ahead. Oh, the wise man's dead, but before he died, he said, "Plan ahead, plan ahead, plan ahead." She's earthy, honest, and sipping each week as a service to you. From Sunset Magazine, it's Sarah Schneider, and this is Sipping with Sarah on Grape Encounters Radio. And like the man said, it is time for Sipping with Sarah, the grand goddess of wine. (laughs) Sarah, welcome. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, as long as you have enough bottles under your desk, everything is good. I thought it was, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me rather than a frontal lobotomy. (laughs) Uh, That's a no-brainer. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's good, Sarah. I'm not usually good on that front. Sarah, today we're going to talk about, I think, the most misunderstood grape on planet Earth. Something obscure? Something incredibly obscure. I don't know if you've ever even heard of it. It is called Cabernet Sauvignon. (laughs) Very obscure. Well, I would contend that it is the most misunderstood grape on the planet. Okay. Here's my reasoning about it. Here's my reasoning about it. (laughs) (laughs) Cabernet Sauvignon, obviously one of the two most well-known grapes in the world, but there are so many people whose introduction to red wine is Cabernet, and because of that, they often make the statement, I don't like red wine. Why do you think they don't like the Cabernet-ness of it? Because the majority of Cabernet that we have to drink is junk. Okay. Fair and I, enough. You know what? How Fair is that? Enough. Okay. I just ticked uh-huh. off the entire wine world there. Yeah, you did all right there. <laughs> okay. But, but here's why. It's not junk. It's just that the difference between fine wine and table wine or everyday wine, wine as a beverage versus wine as an art form. Okay. The amount of Cabernet that is wine as an art form, in my opinion, might be no more than 10% of the Cabernet that's made, whereas 90% is wine as a beverage. So I I wouldn't argue with that. I mean, when you think about how much Cabernet is made here, it's our most drunk red wine in the United States. I would argue that most producers don't make schlocky wine because we know how to make good wine now. There are all sorts of techniques that people can throw at it. But I will agree with you that only a small percentage of it is really fine crafted, an art form, like you say. And by the way, I see nothing wrong with that. You know, the wine that we drink at picnics and barbecues, it doesn't have to be fancy. You know, as long as we keep it in perspective that we only paid 12 bucks for it and it doesn't have to be spectacular. But it can be on the red wine front, I think, especially just generic red wine. Exactly. Even if it's very pleasant. So the thing that is very misunderstood is that you see this tremendous amount of wine that is sold all over America that says Napa on it. And it did come from the Napa Valley, or at least, I guess, 75% of it. The message here that I definitely wanted to get across is the idea that there's an enormous amount of Cabernet that is 
made in Napa or at least grown in Napa. The really good stuff is taken by the good wineries and made into incredible wine and the rest of it becomes bulk wine or it might be, you know, second tier wine or third tier wine. Doesn't make it bad. It just makes it less expensive and for a reason. So we have to be really super careful whether it's Napa or any place that is known for great wine. When we ask the question, what's in a name? Mm -hmm. The answer is not as much as you think, right? Because coming from a great place doesn't necessarily mean it's great. Make it great. Yeah. I I would agree with that. Okay. So I brought a wine. We only have a couple of minutes here, Okay, but I brought a wine for you. I want you to taste this. This is a Cabernet. All right. Okay. So that's uh, not the test. uh, All right. Yeah. That's not the test. It's a blind taste though. It smells like Cabernet. Anyway, I tasted this a week or so ago and I said, you know what? I'm going to take that up to Sarah because I thought that this was an interesting example of how I would like to leave folks in this segment. So tell me your impression. So I don't know. I don't, don't know, know anything about this, this wine. I do not know. Tell me your thoughts on this wine. And then hopefully you'll agree with what I'm thinking and we'll be able to drive home a really awesome point. Okay. I Go wish I knew it. what that point was. No, 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 um, no, no. This is off the cuff. Off the cuff. I think this is a terrific wine. I do um, too. And it did shout Cabernet to me. I think it has all of that cassis and sort of foresty thing going on. A level of chocolate that's really nice. Cabernet usually has a structure a backbone, and this does, I think it's really well balanced. It has some fresh acidity, but ripe fruit. This is a crowd pleaser, right? It is a crowd pleaser. So when I tasted this wine, a distributor for this company came in and knowing my taste, they poured this wine for me and then looked at me and he quoted a price for the wine. I'm expecting a big price on this wine. Let me put it to you this way. I would be more than willing to pay $40 a bottle for Mm -hmm. this wine. That would be fair in my book. Wine like this. I wouldn't be surprised to sell for more than that. 50 or 60 possibly. Right. It's a really smooth, gorgeous wine. So he turns to me and he quotes me this like $100 plus price for the wine. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, well, uh, yeah, I, I guess I can see that, right? He was fibbing. Wow. It's 20 bucks. $20. This is a $20 wine. Now, I know that you love those $20 and under wines. That's your thing. Well, it's my reader's thing. None of us on our own nickel can spend $79 on a bottle every Tuesday night. Okay, so the other thing about it is they're making this in massive quantities. Really? And they're only making this one wine. So here's what it is. The, the big Are reveal. Are you ready? The reveal. Comes. Interesting. Interesting. Daniel Cohn, that has to be a son. It of, is the son of, of B.R. Cohn. B.R. Cohn, who it, manages the Doobie Brothers. Exactly. Isn't that something? That is something. This is his one wine. And it's a 2014, too, so it's kind of a baby. It's fairly young. And it is absolutely delicious. And this is a wine that's available all over the place. And I feel very comfortable telling people this is a great example of a great Cabernet. Now, you know, maybe it's going to be $30 someplace, which right. if you pay $30 for this wine, it's a bargain at it $30. Bargain. But this is a great example of a great wine for very little money. I agree. I would add that this wine clearly isn't made to lay down for the next 15 or 20 years. It's made to drink 
right now, very, very soon. I'm looking at where it's from because, you know, we're talking about Napa Valley. Right, right. As and, an and this isn't a Napa, this isn't a Napa cab. No. no, no. It has a North Coast appellation on it. That is the North Coast of California and it is one of the most enormous official appellations. It includes everything from Sonoma and Napa, Lake County, Monterey, even San Francisco Bay Area. We're, we're all in the North Coast. So it's rare actually that we actually just make wine recommendations. I'm comfortable doing this. The wine is from Daniel Cohn. It's spelled C-O-H-N, and it's the Bella Cosa Cabernet Sauvignon. This is a great example of a Cabernet that you can buy that won't break the bank, and you'll feel like you're drinking an exquisite wine. It's really decent. And there's a lot of these out there. They exist. But, you know, as we see them, I'd like to really take a moment to recognize people who are doing great things like this. This is a really good quality wine. Yeah. No, that's terrific. Okay. I'm glad you liked it. Sarah, that was fun, wasn't it? That was fun. So that's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. And while you all go off to do something else, we're going to sit here and finish off the bottle. I think that's a great plan. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. 